Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to episode four of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve learning of Canadians. You can download this episode, as well as one of 16 future episodes in the series, from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. The conversation you're about to hear took place in Toronto on Monday, April 23rd, 2007, at OISE, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Dr. Levin has spent his career at the intersection of evidence and decision-making. He is exceptionally well-placed to comment on knowledge exchange and mobilization. His comments on the differences between the political and the policy aspects of government are very helpful for those trying to influence the decisions made by our governments. He identifies some leading policy entrepreneurs, but calls for more infrastructures to support knowledge exchange and mobilization. Dr. Levin suggests that there are many good initiatives happening, however, we need more evidence on what works well and when. I always learn so much from my conversations with Ben. It is my hope that you do too. My name is Ben Levin, and uh, I've spent my career about half in academia and half in government, and have a particular interest in uh, the role of research and evidence in uh, shaping policy and practice. Okay. Well, why don't we start right from there? When you talk about evidence, what do you mean? Well, uh, could mean a lot of things. I certainly mean the body of research that's produced in a formal research sense through universities and other research institutions. And then I think the second thing is data from administrative and other sources that is available not necessarily through a research mechanism, but is available and ought to get more use than it does. Then there's all kinds of other evidence that people draw on. Well, it, I mean, that's actually part of the conversation that's come out with a, a whole number of sources of what is included in evidence. And you've recently finished a term. How long was the term? Two and a half years. Two, as, as Deputy Minister of Education in the province of Ontario. When you were at the interface of terms of making decisions, what went into the decision-making process in terms of evidence? Uh, well, there are always a variety of things. It's always a struggle to get the organization to pay more attention to research, to look at the knowledge that's actually available in formal ways. People, What people rely on primarily is their experience, input that comes to them through their interpersonal relationships and networks. Those are con- always have been and continue to be the dominant sources of evidence. So then the struggle is, can you get people to make more attention to uh, better grounded, uh, more empirical sorts of evidence? The knowledge exchange has been described as bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. Does that make sense to you? Is that sure, an adequate description? Yeah, that's okay. fine. So what are the, the ways, uh, perhaps in your recent experience at, at the Ministry of Education, what were the mechanisms that brought people and evidence together? What were the most effective mechanisms? Uh, Most effective is a harder question to answer. There are many things that all need to be done at the same time, and in government you have two sides, the political and the bureaucratic. You have to deal with both sides. They have different rationalities, different ways of operating, quite different worlds. So you actually need two different kinds of strategies. You need one set of things you do with political folks, and you need another things you do with the bureaucratic folks. And how do you make sure that they work together? I don't know if I can answer that (laughs) question. I think you're trying to draw on some of the same evidence, and uh, but present it to people in two different ways, in ways that speak to their different uh, interests and experiences. Okay. So, for example, with the bureaucracy, 
you can say that it's an expectation that when a policy document is drafted, there's some kind of research literature review attached to it. Uh, you can enforce that as an expectation. You can't do that at the political level. Uh, whether the political level will pay any attention to those kinds of reviews when the policy advice arrives is quite another matter. In the political world, the conditioning happens through other kinds of vehicles, okay. political ones. Well, there's been an awful lot of talk around um, knowledge exchange, knowledge transfer, knowledge mobilization, and, and their knowledge management, and the terms differ depending on the area that you're dealing with. I've been speaking to some people in healthcare and saying that given this focus on knowledge transfer, knowledge translation in health, that more evidence is being used more regularly within the healthcare system. At least that's the presupposition that, that is put forward. Would you say the same is in, in terms of education? Yes, I would. And, and what have been the major influencers of that movement? Well, one thing is that uh, educators themselves are better educated and they have more research grounding. More people have been through graduate programs or other kinds of programs that give them some exposure to research. The whole climate around research has changed, so as a result of the larger t tendency towards more use of evidence and research, educators are drawn into that as well. Twenty years ago, you could have talked to a group of school principals, you said the words education research, their eyes glazed over. Now, while people may have concerns about particular kinds of research, nobody would argue that uh, research has nothing to say to policy and practice. These interviews are being done for the Canadian Council on Learning, and so how, how do you differentiate education and lifelong learning? I'm not sure I do differentiate. Okay. You could talk about the formal system and the informal system. How do you support the informal system in terms of workplaces, in terms of organizations, in terms of, you know, you're now in a, a center on study of education. How would you see the interface between evidence and an informal system that is perhaps unregulated, isn't as systematized as, as say, an education system? Uh, I'm not sure I'm understanding. You mean at the policy level? At the policy level, the, the nature of the formal and informal system is irrelevant. Policy issues are... You, the policy process is the same process. The politics are different. Uh, I don't see there being any difference in how you would work with policymakers. It's harder to get evidence on the informal system because it's... Yeah. Um, then perhaps we can talk about a culture that less a system. Uh, what would you see as a culture that would look at using more evidence in the inf in the process of lifelong learning. You know, what are the well, indicators? I, I'm not sure I mean by lifelong learning there. Part of what CCL is pushing on is that learning happens over the entire lifespan. Of course. Right, that it doesn't, yeah. you know, it's just not K to 12 and then post-secondary. Right. Um, that happens throughout, but that structures that support a lifelong learning that's so how could it be better supported well the the whole informal sector is is uh, as you said not very well organized less able to do all kinds of things one of which is to both gather and use evidence but I don't think there's anything particular to the informal learning sector there I think that's just a matter of of what sort of organization framework you bring to in the time that I spent at Shirk one of the things that came out of looking at the research system was that research in some ways can be brought down to three really basic questions. What, so what, and now what. The what being data and information, the so what being meaning, interpretation, and analysis, and the now what leading to actions and decisions and, and outcomes. Part of what was missing, and this is part of the argument that happened at CHIRC, was, was that you needed both in infrastructure to support that movement from what to now what, but you also needed incentives for behavior. Is that if the incentives are all at one level, then it's rational for people to behave in one, in one way. Where the incentive and in the infrastructures exist are, are often between the various research councils, it's, if it's producing a product, the infrastructure and the incentives are there. If it's producing programs, the same kind of thing. But if it was looking at 
you know, development of new people skills at industrial processes, at administrative procedures, at the changing of perspectives, is that it was less clear as to how the research would enter into that process. Do you do you see that as an accurate portrayal? Yeah, I would say more or less. Um, in the research world, there's a lot of infrastructure to support knowledge transfer in the sciences and engineering because, well, partly because it's connected to money, but not just that reason. It's because that's what people do and are used to doing. And in the social science and humanities world, there just isn't. Uh, and not because it couldn't be connected to making money. I mean, that's the point. It could. It's right. just never been done. So, do you think it's important that it, it move towards making money, or do we have to look at value determination in, in other ways? No, I would say it's broader than that. It can't just be done on a commercial basis, although that could be part of it, and is part of it already, actually. Right. But it's done privately, not publicly. There are lots of people in the social sciences and humanities who have commercial enterprises around knowledge creation and uh, knowledge right. mobilization. But it's not supported institutionally in the universities, and it's not very well supported institutionally outside the universities. Do you see a time when that would change? Where it would well, I think it is changing. Okay. I think there's lots more interest in those kinds of enterprises, and the creation of CCL is an example of that, as was, say, the INE and other things that Shirk has done. So I think you're seeing all around the world, this is something I've been working on pretty actively. I was just in Europe a few weeks ago at a conference on this. I think you're seeing all around the world, people are quite interested in thinking about what are the mechanisms that would be roughly analogous to technology transfer on can, the hard science side. Can you describe some of those? Well, I don't think one of the issues is there isn't currently a good taxonomy what those might be. That's actually one of the things I'm interested in working on. But you could roughly say that there's a set of... Um, face-to-face -face activities that are being done and could be thought about as one category, that is how do you actually create personal relationships among people. Then there's a set of knowledge dissemination activities that are, whether they're print or electronic, that are impersonal but aimed at giving people information. And I would say those are the two kind of big categories of things that people are trying to do, but without much thought as to kind of a strategic frame for it. What we've got is a lot of let's try this, let's try that, this seems like a good idea, that seems like a good idea, but there isn't a good box to think about all those things and their relative merits, weigh them against each other, and to have an overall coherent approach, I would say. Do you think that that is something that will emerge or is it something that has to proceed? Uh, it is gradually emerging because there are people working on it. So there are people, again, in, in a number of different countries who are, who are working on that who, issue. Who are some of the leaders? Well, there are some good people in the UK. I'd, uh, I mentioned people like uh, Judy Seba and Sandra Nutley and uh, Annie Oakley. Phil Davies, who's just moved from the UK to the US, is another person. This is in education now. I'm talking yep. about people in education. There are also lots of people in health, like the folks at CHRSF. Uh, here who are leaders in that. But in education, the whole CCL enterprise, I think, has some interesting things to do around that. There are a lot of people who do it as part of their own work as what I call popularizers or policy entrepreneurs. So organizations like the ASCD in the U.S. or Phi Delta Kappa is another U.S. organization that are big into this. The U.S. government labs like uh, MCREL and NCREL uh, and the Southeast Development Labs uh, they do a huge amount of knowledge mobilization work. The Epicenter is another one that's been done in the UK, the Campbell Collaboration at an international scale. So quite a bit of stuff now going on. 
there is some leadership in 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 Canada. I mean, you mentioned CHSRF as mm-hmm. as, as a leader, and and people have picked them up internationally. <coughs> the Campbell has done a lot of work. They're often seen being seen so far ahead of the curve, and and that it's difficult. I mean, some of the criticism that I've I've heard from from the leading organizations is that they spend all their time thinking about this, that they don't understand the prerogatives that we have to deal with at a ministry level or within an agency or whatnot. What, how would you respond to somebody that says it's fine for them, we'd like to do that, but we just can't, we're too busy delivering the kind of services that we have now? You mean in government? In government. Well, I, I don't think government is the place where most of that stuff is going to be done. Okay. Government is a recipient of it, so much a doer of it. It's going to be done mostly outside, as it is in the sciences. You know, governments aren't the main purveyors of knowledge in the sciences. A little bit they are, but mostly they're re- recipients of knowledge. So how, do, how can they better receive knowledge? That requires both things that they would do as the deliverers and things that other people would do as the speakers. So it requires changes on both sides of the uh, of the discussion. The, I think there's been more description of what needs to be done on the research creation side than there has been on the take-up side. But on take-up, I, I can just talk about some of the things we did in the Ontario Ministry. We created the position of a chief research officer. We created a ministry research strategy. We created a ministry staff research network of people who were all working on that. We created professional developments around research. We created certain expectations around research products or work that ought to be associated with policy documents. We created vehicles for sharing research inside the organization. Things you need to do. You need to create an infrastructure and an incentive system inside so that people actually it gets higher on their list of things. And so those those are all things that were created recently. What was the uptake like and, and sort of what is the timeline you would see for, for success coming out of those those created offices? Well, the uptake was good in this sense that there are a lot of people inside uh, the ministry who are keen to do this. Okay. Uh, what there wasn't was uh, leadership and capacity building. There were just a lot of separate efforts that weren't galvanized. So a lot of it was providing some catalytic uh, energy to it all. I would say the take-up was good, but, you know, let's remember in the political process, um, research will never trump political considerations. It is only one consideration that goes into the mix. So that's why the important part is not just what the bureaucracy does, but how the research community communicates to the broader polity. Uh, because what influences political decisions is what citizens and voters think way more than what bureaucrats think most of the time. How can the research community be better at making sure that they communicate in a way that is usable to both the bureaucracy and to the polity? Well, that would be on the research side uh, doing things that are analogous to what's been done on technology transfer. If I'm a scientist and I come up with something that I think has some potential for broader application, nobody says to me, okay, go out and investigate the patent laws, figure out if you can get this patented, go and talk to some companies. No, that's all done for me by people who know what they're doing. So you need something analogous on the social science side that would support people because it is not reasonable to expect most researchers to do the knowledge mobilization work. They can't and they won't. And then that, that was a lesson that we learned at CHIRC after yes. going across the country and yes. talking to people you know, about knowledge mobilization. Yeah. 